0: Good afternoon. Uh, For those of you that I've not had the opportunity to meet just yet, my name is Brian Parks, and I serve as the senior pastor here. I uh, greeted some folks who are new uh, when I first walked into the room this afternoon, and uh, I said, uh, "What led you to come to Covenant Hope Church?" And they said, "Well, we were here last week." And I said, "Well, I wasn't." So uh, anyway, it's uh, maybe I've missed some of you, but welcome. I'm so glad you're here, and I'm delighted to be able to share God's word with you this afternoon. In April of 1521, Martin Luther stood before a court, a very threatening and imposing court. It was the court of the Holy Roman Empire. He was accused of being a religious heretic, and if proved guilty, it could lead to his execution. Now, the courtroom was filled with the highest religious leaders in the Holy Roman Empire and in the Roman Catholic Church. And Martin Luther was there to answer charges against him. The question was posed to him I ask you, Martin, answered candidly and without horns, do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? Luther replied, Since then, your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply. I will answer without horns or teeth, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason. I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Well, even if you don't understand all of the language that Martin Luther used in his reply in that very tense courtroom scene, I think you could tell that Martin Luther was answering from deep convictions that he had. He was answering boldly. He was answering honestly, and he answered with answers that please the Lord. How do you think that you would answer accusations put to you in a hostile courtroom? Or how do you think you would answer the questions of people who had power and authority over you, power and authority to perhaps do you harm, when they ask questions about your faith? Those are the questions that we should consider as we can look at Acts chapter 24 this afternoon, where we find Paul standing trial in the court of Felix, the Roman governor. Now, we're in the final few chapters of the book of Acts, and you may already have recognized that these chapters are dominated by a series of trials. There's actually going to be five trials that we cover This afternoon, we're covering the third trial. Some of them are in informal trials. Some of them are more formal. The first informal trial he had was when he was attacked by Jews in the temple area. He was being beaten, and the Roman Tribune and his soldiers rescued Paul, brought him to the Roman barracks, and Paul defended himself there on the steps of the Roman barracks. Next, in chapter 23, the Roman Tribune had brought Paul before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, a more formal setting, and he answered the charges that they put to him. The Roman Tribune was trying to figure out what it was that Paul had done to make them so angry against him. Now, here in our chapter, chapter 24, there's an even more formal trial. It's the third trial. Now, Paul has... Avoided the Jews' secret plot to kill him, which you heard about last week in the sermon that Nissen gave, and he's been delivered up to the city of Caesarea, which is on the Mediterranean coast, where Felix ruled from. Felix, the governor of the region. And Felix has invited those Jewish leaders from Jerusalem to come down from the mountain to Caesarea to make their charges against Paul in his court. Paul's own people, the Jews, throughout these chapters are rejecting him and his gospel. And the people that Paul has been called to preach to to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gentiles, not his people, they actually are repeatedly finding Paul innocent. Now, all throughout these trials, both formal and informal, the writer of the book of Acts wants us to see that Paul is an innocent man and that he had lived a life of integrity. All throughout, he remained faithful to proclaim Jesus as the Lord and Savior. And I think you'll see those two features in our passage today. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 24, or you can find the passage printed out in your bulletin. Acts chapter 24 is where we'll be reading from. Verses 1 to 27. And after five days, the high priest... Ananias came down with some elders and spokesmen, one Tertullus, they laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way, everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will, find, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring my alms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, "'Go away for the present.' When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your word. We praise you that your word gives us light, a light for our path. We pray, Lord, that you would fill our hearts and our minds with your light. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. What we can see for ourselves and learn from this passage this afternoon are two points, two things we see here. First... We're to answer the world's accusations with a life of integrity. Answer the world's accusations with a life of integrity. And secondly, we answer the world's questions with the gospel of Christ. We answer accusations with a life of integrity, and we answer questions with the gospel of Christ. First, we answer the world's accusations with a life of integrity, and we see that in verses one through 23. Verses one through 23 are a courtroom scene in front of the Roman governor Felix. The Jewish high priest and his fellow leaders have come down from Jerusalem, and they brought with them a spokesman, a lawyer named Tertullus. Now once Paul had been brought out of his prison cell and brought into the hall there with Felix and the Jewish leaders, the trial begins with Tertullus summarizing the Jews' accusations against Paul. And one thing that stands out immediately is the length of time that Tertullus spends telling the governor Felix how great he is and how much the Jews love and admire his rule over them before he begins leveling his accusations against Paul. You see, Tertullus is flattering Felix. Listen to it again, beginning halfway through verse two and end into verse three. Since through you we enjoy much peace and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Now the truth was, that Felix had created a false sense of peace in Israel by violently putting down any sign of rebellion among the Jews. He had killed many, many people. No Jew would have had a real love for Felix. You can be sure of that. Tertullus, of course, is trying to win favor with Felix to get the verdict that he and the Jews won, a guilty verdict against Paul. And while it's not the main point of this passage, it's worth seeing a warning here for us. Don't be a person who uses flattery to get what you want. Proverbs 29.5 says, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his neighbor's feet. Flattery is a lie. It's a selfish lie pretending to be a selfless Encouragement. Let me say that again. Flattery is a selfish lie pretending to be a selfless encouragement. That's what makes it evil. Flattery doesn't want to truly build up the un- other person. It wants to take from the other person. It wants to entrap and gain for itself. So ask yourself this question. Do I say complimentary things about others so that they'll think better of me? So that maybe they'll give me what I want, whether it's respect or deference in some way? Or do I give compliments to other people simply to encourage them and build them up in Christ, to help them follow Jesus? Which is... Oh, brothers and sisters, beware of flattery. Now, Tertullus was trying to spread a net with his flattery so that he could trap Felix into giving a guilty verdict against Paul. And in verses 5 through 8, then he lays out three basic charges against Paul, none of which they can prove. First, he says that Paul is a plague or a disease Someone who's stirring up riots, not just in Jerusalem, but he claims throughout the world. Stirring up riots, of course, of, would have been a serious threat to the Roman rule in the region. Something that the Romans would have wanted to put down. Second, Tertullus labels Paul the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He's using a derogatory term for Christians here. And he's claiming that Paul is leading a disruptive, heretical, religious movement. You see, Felix had had to deal with many disruptive religious movements in Israel at that time that stirred up civil unrest. So Tertullus is trying to lump Paul and the Christians in with them. And third, Tertullus claims that Paul profaned the Jewish temple. And he claimed that because the Romans had given the Jews permission to execute anyone who went in and profaned the temple. That was a permission that the Romans had given them. Living boldly for Christ oftentimes stirs up hostile enemies against us in the world. Just like it did for Christ himself and just like it's doing for Paul in this passage and in so many other places we've seen in the book of Acts. It's something that you might face yourself at some point if you live boldly for Jesus. How do we answer the world's hostile accusations against us? We answer them with a life of integrity. A life like Jesus's life and a life just like Paul his servant. Paul's turn to reply then comes in verses 10 through 21. And he's pointing here to his life of integrity. And so after a mere and respectful greeting to Felix as the judge, Paul refutes every single one of the charges that are against him. First he says, the Jews didn't find me anywhere disputing or stirring up a crowd. He says, they can't prove any of the charges against me. Instead of being the ringleader of an unruly sect, Paul sets out the truth that he worships the God of our fathers, he says, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. In other words, Paul is saying, I am a faithful Jew who lives my life according to the Jewish scriptures. Not a heretical sect. Beyond that, Paul then goes on to remind Felix that he holds on to the same hope in God that these very Jews who are accusing him hold on to. And that is that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both the just and the unjust. Paul is arguing here that like his Jewish accusers, he believes That all people who have ever lived will one day be resurrected from the dead. And that they will be declared by God, who is the judge of all mankind, either to be just or unjust. This is what the scriptures teach. Paul was right. If you believe in a final judgment, a final day of reckoning, then you will search in life for a way to be declared not guilty before God when that day comes. Paul believes that. Look with me at verse 16. Paul's arguing that his life demonstrates that he believes this. He says, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. You see, Paul is pointing to his life of integrity. He's saying, I have a clear conscience about how I've lived my life. He's not saying that he's perfect, but he's saying that he strives to live a life pleasing to God, who will be the great and final judge of all people, including himself. Paul continues then in his defense by telling them that he'd come to Jerusalem to bring monetary gifts to the poor of Jerusalem and to present offerings in the temple. He claims that he was not profaning the temple. In fact, he was ritually pure when he was in the temple. And the Asian Jews, he says, that actually made the allegations against him initially, they should be the ones who were there in the court making those accusations themselves. And then lastly, in verse 21, Paul points to his declaration before the Jerusalem council that it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial in your presence today. Paul's answer to his hostile accusers is that he has lived a life of integrity before all men and before God. He sought to live his whole life as worship to God, we can say. The best way for us to answer the world's accusations against us as Christians is to live a life of integrity so that we can point to it. We have to walk in accordance with our talk. We have to live in line with our confession. To have integrity is to be honest. It's to be morally upright. And that's how we must live, brothers and sisters. We don't do this to earn our salvation. That's not how you become a Christian. But we do it to demonstrate that Christ has already saved us. Brothers and sisters, it's not enough to call yourself a Christian or simply attend a church service once a week. How you and I live the other six and a half days of the week matters before God. Ephesians 2 tells us that we weren't saved by our good works, but we were saved by grace, through faith, for good works, which God prepared in advance for us. Romans 12, Paul urges the church to present your bodies as A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is to your spiritual worship. You see, we become living sacrifices when we walk through each day living with integrity, when we interact with people with honesty, and when we do the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. You know, in the last several months, I... I've heard of one brother in the Lord here in Dubai, a good friend who left Islam to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior, and during Ramadan, when his boss came to talk to him and ask him, what should our Ramadan timings be? Because you're a Muslim, I want your input. Rather than keep his head down and just answer the question directly, he said, you know what, you should know that I'm actually a Christian. That's living with integrity. That's living with honesty. I know of another brother who was being pressured by his company to cheat the customers that they served. And instead, he refused, and it's cost him his job. He's living a life of integrity. would the non-Christians around you say that you live a life of integrity? If they accuse you of dishonesty or a lack of integrity, would they be able to make a case against you? Our lives either support or they contradict our verbal witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which one is it for you? If you've done something dishonest or selfish or wronged a coworker, which on occasion we as Christians find ourselves falling into sin and that we can experience those very things, but we can make it right. Oh, brothers and sisters, do something that the world does not understand. Ask for forgiveness, apologize, make it right. That's what it means to live a life of integrity. Paul's answer to, his, to the world's accusations was his life of integrity, of true, holistic worship of God. And we too must live so that we can answer in the same way when the world's accusations come to us. After Paul had made his defense... We read in verses 22 and 23 that Felix concludes the trial. He decides to hold Paul in captivity, under guard, but with some freedoms there in Caesarea. He says, until Lysias, the Roman tribune from Jerusalem, can come and testify evidently to him. Those people that would have come and helped Paul while he was in prison, of course, were the Christians from the church in Caesarea that we met back in chapter 21. People like Philip the Evangelist and his four daughters who prophesied. Those people would have taken care of Paul in prison. And we we read here that Paul's imprisonment lasted for two years. And then in verses 24 through 27 we read how Paul shared the gospel with Felix and his wife, Drusilla, throughout that entire two-year time. They sought Paul out, and they asked questions about his faith. And Paul answered them by explaining the gospel of Christ. We can also learn from verses 24 and 27 through 27 with Paul's example to answer the world's questions with the gospel of Christ. We too should do that. We learn here in these verses that Felix's wife, Drusilla, was Jewish herself. We also learn in verse 22 that Felix had an accurate knowledge of the way, which is a way of describing Christianity, a term that described Christianity. And during those two years, Felix and Drusilla would go and see Paul. They would have him brought out of his prison cell and they would sit and talk with him. Talk to him about faith. In verse 24, it says that they heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And verse 25 tells us even more detail about how Paul presented the gospel. Look there at verse 25. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Now, we know from other historical sources that Felix had seduced Drusilla and stolen her away from another husband. Felix himself had been married three times. The historian named Tacitus says of Felix that he indulged in, quote, every kind of barbarity and lust. And so it's no surprise to learn here that Paul preached the gospel of faith in Christ, and he focused on the need for repentance. Repentance from sins that Paul knew that Felix and Drusilla would have needed to turn away from in their lives if they were going to turn to Christ. Sins like unrighteousness, barbarity, cruelty, wrong conduct in their lives. He also spoke to them about their lack of self-control, perhaps with regard to sex or money or power, or all three. And he preached to them that there would be a coming judgment for all people, including them. When the world asks us questions about what we believe, we must tell them the gospel of Christ and included in that message of good news, we have to tell people the bad news. Otherwise, the good news is not truly good. You see, all people are born into this world with a sinful nature. We are born with a bent to disobey God. In big ways and little ways, we are sinners. Every single person. And no amount of good deeds that we do in this life can cancel out bad deeds. It doesn't work like that. Any sin against God stands as a testimony against us because God is holy. He is entirely pure and good and righteous. And an entirely good and pure and righteous God must condemn and punish sin. And so we all stand condemned. We all stand condemned in the courtroom of a righteous God. There's nothing that we can do about it. But there's something that God has done about it. Because in His great love for us, God sent His Son, Jesus. He came into the world. He took on flesh. He lived a sinless life, something that no other human being had done or has done since. And He went to the cross and died an undeserving death. And in doing that, He became a substitute for us, taking the penalty for the sins of anyone who would turn to him in faith. Do you see how the bad news is necessary to understand the good news of Jesus? And that's what Paul is explaining to Felix and Drusilla, that there will be a coming day of judgment Now, one thing that's striking about Paul boldly sharing his faith in Christ here is that he was sharing it with people who had power over his life. Felix could have decided at any moment in time and told his centurions, take him out and crucify him. But two things must have strengthened Paul, enabling him to share boldly with Felix and Drusilla. We know that not only from the immediate context around chapter 24, but Paul's writings as well. First of all, we know that Paul trusted ultimately in the sovereignty of God, the God who had control and has control over everything and everyone. You see, Felix might be a ruler with power to put him to death, but Felix could only do what the Lord intended to happen. We know that the Lord came and stood with Paul in the prison in Jerusalem, if you'd read back in Chapter 23 and encouraged him and said, you must continue testifying to the facts about me and you will get to Rome to do the same thing. The Lord was in control and that gave Paul confidence to share boldly. In addition to that, we know that Christ had poured out his love on Paul, an undeserving murderer, and brought him to himself and given him a great love for all people, even his enemies, because Paul had been an enemy of God himself at one point. No matter whether people were rich or poor, whether they were Jewish or Gentile, whether they were people of great power or low esteem, Paul knew that the gospel of God's gracious, lavish love was for them as well. And so he knew that this gospel was for Felix and Drusilla as well. Paul had written to the Corinthians in his second letter to them, for the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And a few verses later, he comes to this dramatic conclusion. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ Be reconciled to God. That's exactly what he was doing with Felix and Drusilla. Because he knew that God loved them and he loved them. Do you trust in God's sovereignty enough to share your faith boldly with people who have some power over you? Some power perhaps to do you harm, to take away from you in some way? Has the Lord shown you such gracious and lavish love that it's spilling over in your life not only for the people that you love who are kind and gracious to you but also perhaps your enemies? Perhaps it means, brothers and sisters, that the Lord might give you the opportunity to share the gospel with a manager or a boss or a supervisor in your workplace. Someone who has the power to fire you. Perhaps it might mean for some of us that we'll stand before the authorities in this country and have an opportunity to speak about Jesus. Maybe it's your parents. Parents who have say in your life, sway over you. They can make your life difficult. Would you share the gospel with them? Even if you knew it might make them angry? Even if you knew it might cause them to reject you? You know, in our church covenant, we pledge together as a church to, it says this literally, by a loving example and speaking the gospel, seek the salvation of our family and friends. You know, as I read this passage, I was thinking to myself, perhaps we should add and even our enemy. Certainly that's what Paul was doing here. And that's a frightening thought for you, brothers and sisters. And that's understandable. Pray for boldness. Pray for opportunities. Pray for the Spirit to fill you up so that you'll have courage in the day to open your mouth and testify to Christ before people who are over you. Paul was boldly sharing the gospel with Felix and Drusilla in response to their questions. And yet, Felix and Drusilla ultimately seem to have rejected Paul's message of faith in Christ. Luke tells us that they became alarmed when they heard about the judgment to come. And they sent him away. Paul's talk of judgment didn't lead them to repentance. But instead, unfortunately, led them to reject the gospel. besides their fear, it seems that Felix kept calling on Paul not to hear more about the gospel, but really in hopes that Paul would pay him a bribe to enrich him. Felix was more interested in the money that he could put in his pocket than he was in gaining access to the immeasurably rich inheritance that's in Christ Jesus. What a shame. What a loss. If you're not a Christian, I'm thrilled that you're here. Our doors are open every Friday at three. We want you to come. We want you to come to the prayer meeting that's going to be in my home every first and third Friday. You'll hear testimonies. We'll give away books. We're going to have a great time together. We're going to pray together. Of course, the church community is the best place to learn about what it means to be a Christian. Each week we teach from the Bible, a certain passage of the Bible, but we also relate that one passage to the entire message of the Bible. That entire message is the gospel, which I just explained a few minutes ago. The bad news and the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. If you've understood that message, what are you waiting for? Be careful that you're not like Felix and Drusilla, who put off a decision to follow Christ. Maybe they thought, we'll do it next week. We'll do it next year. We'll do it when it's not so costly to us. The Bible teaches clearly that there are windows of time when the Lord is working in men and women's hearts to draw them to himself. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you can choose any time to turn to Christ. If you sense your need for Christ now, if you know you need forgiveness for your sins in order to stand in that courtroom on the day, oh, turn to him now. Don't put it off. What's keeping you from putting your trust in? There's great irony in this account of Paul facing down his accusers in that court in front of the Governor Felix. Paul proclaimed to them in public and in private that all people would be resurrected to a heavenly courtroom with King Jesus on the judgment seat. The very people who stood and accused Paul and the very ruler who held him in prison for two years waiting for a bribe, all of them will one day themselves stand before Christ the judge. And if they never turned to Christ, if they never received the forgiveness freely that Jesus offers, they will stand condemned even for how they treated Paul on that day. we too will arise and stand trial. Because the sinless Savior Jesus stood trial and was condemned in our place, we will be acquitted, brothers and sisters, and we will join Christ in the glorious new heavens and new earth because Christ has saved us. And because we know that there is a judgment day to come, we live lives of integrity to honor him no matter what the world accuses us of. And when the world comes asking questions about what we believe and why we believe, we share the gospel of Christ with them, just like Paul did. That's our answer to the accusations and the questions of the world. May God strengthen us together to remain faithful until he returns. Let's pray.